You are listening to the Nirvana Podcast, episode 20, Peace, Love, Empathy, Kurt Cobain. Hello everybody and welcome to the Nirvana Podcast. My name is Sietse. And I'm Jiritja. And we talk about Nirvana in this podcast and we've done so for... Uh, well, 20 episodes now, and we're almost at the end of our story. Yes, we are. So today, in a way, we're going to talk about, well, you could say the final chapter of, well, at least Kurt Cobain's life, and of course also Nirvana's life, or is it? We'll get back to that, probably. We'll get back to that, (laughs) because we can (laughs) announce that we uh, are not going to quit this podcast after this one. We've had some uh, listeners uh, reaching out to us, asking us to keep the podcast going even after uh, this, um, yeah, inevitable subject, and uh, and we will. So I see it like, well, we've done uh, 20 episodes chronologically from the birth of Kurt Cobain and the birth of the band to uh, to the end. And after this episode, we're gonna do like, well, you could call it like a. a a second season or bonus episodes or whatever. Uh, let's, let's call it a second season. That sounds nice. I like that. We have some ideas for, uh, for more uh, uh, thematic episodes. Maybe we're going to have some guests on. Uh, we'll see how it all is going to work out. But uh, stay, stay tuned. Don't uh, unsubscribe us <laughs> just yet. <laughs> no, we'll definitely be back. But before we're back, uh, we have to do this one. Because, uh, yeah, this is uh, the end of... The biggest part of the story, basically, the uh, the end of the band and, unfortunately, the end of Kurt Cobain. We're going to pick up the story uh, on uh, uh, March the 4th in uh, 1994. Last time we talked about the last uh, studio session Nirvana de- did, um, their last TV performances and their last uh, live shows. Um, that ended in uh, Germany, in Munich, where they performed uh, on uh, March the 1st. After that, Kurt flew to Rome and the rest of the band, I think, went back to the United States. But Kurt uh, went to Rome because he uh, was going to meet up with his wife, Courtney Love, there. It's the beginning of a very mysterious incident, I think. Or maybe it's not so mysterious. Depends on what sources you <laughs> yeah, exactly. you, you read and believe. It's um, yeah, commonly most commonly known as uh, the Rome incident. I think... One of the reasons it's slightly mysterious is that um, at first what happened there was um, branded as something else. Kurt overdosed and did so, found out later, on purpose. So it was a suicide attempt, apparently. But at first it was obviously brought to the public as an accidental overdose. It's a bit hard to really know how much of it was accidental or not how much of it was in the spur of the moment or not so yeah that sort of thing uh, um, is uh, gives room for speculation and also because this is the sort of thing that you have to think of a um, media strategy because uh, the media in that period was was so hot on the tails of the band and Courtney Love that everything that happened had to have a story basically to put out there so let's Try to summarize what what we know that actually did happen. 
Kurt and Courtney met up in Rome. I think Courtney was a lot later than she was supposed to be. Then they spent some time together. They slept in a in a hotel in Rome. In the middle of the night, Courtney woke up and found Kurt on the floor, overdosed on uh, apparently a rohypnol, which is like a sedative. Is that, is that the word? Yeah, yeah, that's that's the right word. Yeah, a a really heavy sedative. Um, but yeah, and I think he he took like. An immense amount of of those pills. So and also um, drank champagne with it. Courtney uh, called an ambulance uh, that drove him to uh, the hospital, and uh, Kurt went uh, into a coma. Pretty soon after that, it was already uh, reported that uh, he was dead. I think uh, some some news outlets uh, reported that. Then he woke up from the coma. And like you said, they declared that it was an accident. He was he was uh, exhausted. He was yeah took pills and alcohol that he shouldn't mix. And exactly <laughs> the, the 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 nice story that uh, yeah that you often hear in cases like this. So that's what we know. And then, then Kurt recovered, and like a week later, um, they uh, they flew back home. The rest of the band had, uh, or at least part of the rest of the band, had already gone back home because they had this pause in the tour, and they skipped the last two dates in Germany. But at first, they were supposed to pick up the rest of the tour, but obviously, when this happened, uh, the rest of the tour got cancelled. So in a way, Kurt finally sort of had what he wanted. Don't think it, it that was the reason why he did it, but he desperately wanted to cancel the tour so he could go back and uh, and just be home. And and also his bandmates and his friends were told that it was an accident. He said so uh, himself to to everybody. But the details of what exactly went down are still a bit fuzzy. I think mm-hmm. that's partly because this. Uh, incident also, uh, always gets mentioned by uh, conspiracy theorists who um, think it was a first murder a- attempt. They challenge Courtney's story about it. And quite frankly, her, her story changes a bit also. There's some strange details in it, like somebody tipped off the press because there's an actual picture of uh, Courtney uh, in the ambulance. Also, uh, the, the boss of his record company. Yeah, or his management. Yeah, yeah, Geffen. They were they were called, right? Yeah, they were called pretty soon after the incident that this happened. Later, uh, it was said that it was a Courtney Love impersonator, which is <laughs> really bizarre. Yeah. It really doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I mean, why would anybody do that? How would they have the phone number of a big <laughs> record label executive? <laughs> exactly. And why why would you call Geffen when you can call um, the media? I mean, yeah, it's that's <laughs> just really, really, really strange. Yeah. And also some other details are a bit weird. Like Kurt um, apparently had like a thousand dollars in cash on him when he was found. Um, he had written a note, but what was in the note was has never been di- disclosed. Uh, Courtney later said that she burned the note because somebody of the police told her to do so because there were things in there that weren't very nice. There's all kinds of strange details and it's really, really hard to figure out what to believe. Yeah, there was, I think she mentioned that in in interviews that apparently his suicide note had like references to Hamlet or something like that. Yeah, that he had to choose between life and death. Yeah, and I... No idea if that's true, but <laughs> he never referred to that later. But yeah, then again, you don't really know because 
people are not consistent in in what they do or write or think, especially when you're in the state of uh, well, the state that that Kurt was in. And I think that in this case as well, uh, let's not forget that Courtney wasn't mentally uh, the best at that moment either. Um, <laughs> again, a combination of drug medicine misuse. Um, I mean, the Rohypnol was, was hers, I think. Um, or at least part yeah, of it was she, hers. Yeah, it was well known that she, she, she took a lot of those pills. Exactly. And she'd had, like, she was just before her own release. Uh, she had been traveling. She did. So, like, a lot of it is weird. <laughs> but yeah. when you think of the circumstances, it sort of makes sense because nothing and nobody made sense during that period. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. But like you said, this is something that because it was also unclear and because what happened after that, people have tried to find out what actually happened and obviously we'll never know, but something that um, caused a lot of speculation. Yeah, and, and every tiny detail seemed to become a story um, of its own. For instance, when Kurt woke up, I think he wrote on a piece of paper... Uh, Get these fucking tubes out of my uh, um, no nose. <laughs> and uh, when he could speak, apparently uh, the first thing he said to Courtney was "f you," and he requested a strawberry milkshake. I mean, <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't even read this from my notes. It's just something that I know because I've read yeah. these <laughs> things a couple of times, and then it sticks in your head. Like it's it's a matter of fact, or like it's it's important. Well, at the same time, I mean. I wasn't there. Uh, I don't know. No, and and like you said, the the whole idea of those things getting out there. I mean, everybody who's been like in a operation or something like that, where you get sedation before and after, you know that when you wake up, you say weird stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so I can I can totally get that when you when you've taken too many sedatives and you wake up from a coma, you're like, oh I want a strawberry milkshake. But it's not relevant. So why would yeah. you would you put that out there and yeah. yeah <laughs> it makes it's, no it's sense. Strong. Let's uh, let's listen to um, Courtney Love and how she looks back at the incident uh, uh, years and years later. Um, mm -hmm. She said this in the uh, montage of Hack, the documentary that uh, came out a couple of years ago. But I never, never cheated on him, but I certainly thought about it one time in London. And I could have done it. And um, the response to it was... Um, he took 67 Rohypnols and ended up in a coma because I thought about cheating on him. I mean, fuck, you're kidding. I didn't even make the phone call to do it. So why do you think he chose that night to try to take his life? Was it because he felt rejected? I think he would see it more as like severe betrayal than rejection. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a bit of an... Oh, it's explanation, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. I think she she refers to uh, Billy Corgan, right? I read that somewhere that that was sort of a a, yeah. um, a a problem between them. It was her ex, and apparently she saw him the day before, or whatever. And Kurt thought that that was the reason she was late. I think that was the story. Yeah, right? there, there, there was a lot of speculation uh, about Courtney cheating on Kurt, and I think he was at least insecure about that we don't know if she actually cheated on him or what happened in reality but there was a lot of speculation and i think kurt wasn't sure about it either 
And a lot of his friends didn't really like her. So maybe they weren't the first ones to defend her. Or could be. Um, I, I do find it interesting that she is sort of making this about her. And I, <laughs> I say this with the utmost respect because she was his wife and we don't know how their relationship was and how important she was to him and whatever. But just as someone hearing this from a distance, I we've talked the whole previous episode about how bad he was feeling about um, his health, the band, his his heroin abuse, stuff like that. And I find it interesting that that she is like, okay, so he took all of those pills because he was angry with me. At the same time, maybe he did. And it was sort of a way for him to get her attention. Because if you take those pills with her next to you, she'll probably wake up soon enough to save you. I mean, who knows? So it yeah. could be true, but it's just, it's interesting that, that she mentioned it like yeah. this. Yeah, it seems a bit uh, of a simplification to me. I mean, yeah. I think later, I think it was in the same interview where she said that, well, all he needed was to get laid. Yeah. Um, I'm not <laughs> yeah, sure exactly. that that yeah. would have solved all of his problems. But, uh, and let's not forget, this is important to mention um, also because I mean, we're doing an episode about something that's not an easy subject, um, suicide. And there's a lot of things that have been said about that, not just about Kurt Cobain, but in general about why people commit suicide. We are not experts. Please don't take us as experts on that subject. Um, there are many tiny reasons that all add up and then make someone choose something like that. And people always try to find like one reason, um, just like Courtney now says, okay, this is what happened and that's why he tried that. Usually that one thing is is just a trigger um, of a lot of other things that lie underneath. So whatever we discuss and speculate and what she's saying and other people are saying, um, I think it's it's important to to just acknowledge that it's, even though we would want it to be that simple, it usually never is. We should also realize that pretty much nobody knows what exactly is going on in somebody's mind who's suicidal. Huh? Maybe if you've been there yourself, you can you can relate, but then it's so personal. Yep. It's like your deepest, darkest struggle that I think nobody can really grasp it unless you're an expert, maybe if you're a psychiatrist or, or something like that. Uh, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and since we are neither a psychiatrist uh nor a suicidal, uh, nor did we know um, Kurt personally at the time. Uh, yeah, I totally agree with your uh, disclaimer. Mm -hmm. So um, let's try to stick um, to the facts. Uh, like I said, uh, about a week later, um, Kurt was recovered enough to um, fly back home to, to Seattle. In a lot of ways, the incident was like the beginning of the end. Chris had also said that something had changed in Kurt. Yeah. And his, his behavior became more and more out of control. Some people speculated that he had uh, suffered brain damage because of the coma. Um, he's starting to use more and more heroin. And, and it was a really, really um, troubling time for everybody around him, I think. Yeah, definitely. And I think that 
Chris mentioned that later on, and I think Dave has commented on that as well, that for them at that moment, it was quite clear that it was over for the band, at least, even though nobody had really said that. Kurt was basically in, in, a, in a state and a mind of his own, not thinking about um, making music or anything else that would uh, maybe lift his spirits uh, or uh, friends. He was deeply going into the heroin. Um, he had been for some time, but it now only got worse, which meant that he usually went to other people who were also heavy users or dealers. His own usual group of people around him were much more remote than they were. So that made it harder as well for them, but also for him. I've read in one of the biographies that at one point, um, drug dealers didn't want to let him in anymore because mm -hmm. he was so out of control that they were afraid that he would overdose uh, at their place. And then the press and the police would be all over there, which is... yeah. Whew, which is an awful sign if even drug dealers say, no, maybe you're you're taking this a bit too far. Yeah, exactly. That's that's shocking. Um, I must say, at that period, the drug scene was really big in in Seattle and the surrounding areas. Um, I've I've mentioned Mark Lennox's book a couple of times already. If if you're interested in that kind of stuff, do read his book. It's it's not a fun book, but you really get to know about that whole system of how does it work when you're so heavily into drugs that that becomes your whole life and you only hang around with dealers at their homes or whatever. And that, that whole network was pretty big. So, so I can imagine that having such a famous person who is being, being haunted everywhere is going to be well, let's say a threat to your whole um, business as well. No. Um, let's not forget that. I mean, yeah. Another thing that's, uh, that happened around this time was uh, another incident uh, where the police was called to, uh, to Kurt and Courtney's uh, home. Neighbors, I think, had complained that there was a disturbance. Um, yeah. They showed up, they confiscated a couple of guns and um, they brought Kurt in. Yeah, but released him uh, pretty pretty soon after that, um, and this is another one of those incidents that has been discussed maybe all, <laughs> maybe even too much. Yeah, it's again hard to to be sure of what to believe. We don't really know. I mean, they were spinning a story. Other people were spinning stories. Um, Kurt later said that the only dispute they had was about um, who the police should take because they should take one of the two and they yeah. both said oh pick me but that's not very <laughs> believable as well we, no. we don't really know what happened no and 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 don't forget in cases like this if this is like a a um let's say a domestic row and and neighbors call the police police can't do that much either i mean what can you do you take you you can take them in and then what take the uh, guns away Exactly, and that's that's what they did. And then, yeah, send them home again because nothing really happened. So, yeah. yeah. And and then, the, again, the speculation begins. Um, uh, apparently, Courtney told the police that Kurt had locked himself into a room with a couple of guns and was threatening to kill himself. Uh, yeah. Um, Kurt said he had only locked himself in to have some 
peace and quiet and <laughs> yeah. to get away from court. We, d- we don't know. No. But we do know that that pretty much everybody uh, in his surroundings was very, very concerned with his behavior. Yep. And his... Um, and his mental state, uh, because a week after this incident, um, they staged an intervention. Uh, a lot of his friends and people from the uh, music business, and I think even uh, a, a counselor, um, decided to um, confront Kurt with their concerns and put pressure on him that if he didn't get his act together, that the band would be over. Um, uh, Courtney might might leave him. He may never see his daughter again. Stuff like that, and mm-hmm. uh, that must have been a really, really intense moment as well for everybody there. I think. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, that's that's something that's not easy for for anyone. I think the fact that they did this and there were so many different people there does say a lot about how they cared about him. I think obviously there's also like the the business point of view for for some of Mm -hmm. them. But in any case, they didn't just leave him be. They wanted him to get well in some kind of way. So, uh, yeah. Courtney later said that they uh, should never have done that because Kurt felt that everybody ganged up on him and... and, and yeah. Um, <laughs> that's what happened <laughs> but they were they were desperate on the other hand um <laughs> i think kurt said that he thought it was very hypocritical because a lot of the his friends were on drugs uh, themselves i mean who, who were they to confront him and yeah well <laughs> yeah exactly but again this is this is one of those like damned if you do damned if you don't kind of things because yeah. like what do you want them to do just leave him be i mean that's yeah. that's not what you as a friend and even as a business partner would do. And I think also, um, again, here there's like conflicting stories because Courtney said that, but apparently they had planned to do an intervention a bit before already, right. which never happened because Chris t- tipped <laughs> Kurt, <laughs> basically, yeah. because he off. apparently was like having doubts whether that was a good idea. And then Courtney was mad at Chris for doing that. So, I yeah. mean, again, this is something you take day by day. And, and maybe if they did the intervention a week earlier, it would have gone better. I mean, you never know how how somebody is feeling. And yeah. Personally, I think that if I, they hadn't done the intervention, the outcome would have been the same. And they would have yeah. said, oh, we should have done that exactly at least we should have tried we should have done something i i have a a question though for you that you maybe know (laughs) um (laughs) or maybe not maybe our our listeners know in all of this like this whole period you read a lot about chris and and the way that he was feeling and what he was doing and trying to do they were obviously friends for a long time so that makes sense Later on, uh, Pat Smear is also part of this story. And I was just wondering where Dave was. And I don't mean that like in a negative way, like, oh, he should have done something, but just, I, <laughs> I never see his name in any of the stories of this period, but maybe like you've seen interviews with him or whatever that, that he speaks about this. Do you know? I know a little something about it. Uh, I know uh, that he has said in an interview that things were getting weird towards the end and there was a very clear line between those who did the drugs and those who didn't. Mm-hmm. And 
he wasn't doing any drugs. So I, I, I think he was more or less minding his own business. Yeah. I mean, he was going on tour with them as a drummer and, and did the best he could. But he was also working on other projects. He was recording his own music. He was recording, I think, with the Backstreet, uh, the Backbeat band. Uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to say the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> Not the I was Backstreet like, Boys. oh, the I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> no, the the Backbeat band, uh, exactly, the Backbeat like the, band. the grunge all-star band that performed uh, uh, early Beatles songs. Yep. Um, so I, I I think he more or less withdrew. Maybe he realized that it wasn't his place to. Mm-hmm to be and maybe he realized that he couldn't there wasn't a lot he could do and that it wouldn't do him a lot of good maybe again this is just me speculating but but i i think that and also he didn't know kurt that long i mean they had lived together for for a couple of time but he was only in the band for just a couple of years kurt was kind of mean to dave that's Mm -hmm. been reported yeah he even complained about his drumming i mean there's more behind that than just drumming i think so maybe he just knew that if kurt was going to be saved that he should do so himself yeah it makes sense makes sense things things stuff like that and because chris was his childhood friend exactly he felt more eager to try everything he could and maybe he felt that he could reach kurt on a deeper level because they went back so long yeah Luckily, we have one piece of music we can listen to this episode. Oh, that's good. Uh, You said that Kurt wasn't that interested in music anymore, but he was working on some music. He jammed with uh, Pat Smear and with Eric uh, Erlandson, guitarist of uh, of Hall. Apparently, they even uh, recorded some stuff. And there's one song that may very well be uh, the last uh, song that he wrote. Um, that's been, uh, that's been re- recorded. It's called, uh, Do Re Mi. And we have actually two versions of that. Yeah, we're going to just going to listen to, uh, <laughs> to both of them, uh, uh, back to back. sure but i think that last uh, version we heard was uh, a truly uh, a solo uh, demo it was released on the uh, montage of hack uh, yeah. album uh, and the one before that uh, that could be from uh, one of the jams kurt did with uh, uh, pat and uh, eric mm-hmm. but only the guitar which was played by pat and the vocals um, are on the tape 
Kurt was drumming on it and uh, Eric Erlandson was playing bass, but um, at least we know that this is one of the last songs that Kurt was working on. And I think it's a, it's a really good one. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was just thinking, like, did, did anybody ever try to cover that? Because it's actually quite a complete song already. Yeah, you it could, is. You could make a really nice version out of it, but I can't remember I've ever seen another version of it. I, I, I do have one more version of it lined up. When we did uh, the Unplugged album, uh, we talked about fake acoustic uh, uh, versions <laughs> of uh, Nirvana songs. Well, now we have a fake electric version because there's people who did like band mock-ups for, for this song, taking the original recording and then filling in uh, the rest of the instruments. Want to listen to that uh, as well? Yeah, let's do it. So we get an impression of how the song might have sounded if um, the band had recorded it. Pretty well, uh, pretty pretty well done, and um, yeah, yeah, it could have been uh, a great Nirvana song. And now it's just like an interesting artifact, almost. It's interesting because when you hear it like this, it's like you sort of don't recognize it. At least I did not at first. Um, you just hear that sort of Nirvana-like sound, and then later on, it's like. Oh, right. That's the song that they've been using. Um, because yeah. it's like in such a different context that you don't, that you don't recognize it. What is interesting is when the people who did this made it quite simple, obviously, because like you can't make it really intricate. Um, but it does sort of give that more relaxed melodic feeling that we've talked about before like what direction would Kurt have gone into even if you put a like a backbeat like this behind it it sort of feels like oh this is yeah could be Nirvana but it's it's might be going in a different direction so yeah it's interesting but if Kurt had worked on it with the band uh, they could have taken it into another direction as well exactly yeah making maybe making it really loud and screamy I mean that's totally a possibility but um I think it's good to know that music was still with him in a way. I mean, not just because he gave us another song, but yeah. yeah and I, he wrote some lyrics as well, right? Like not not pro- proper songs, but like bits and pieces here and there for new songs, but just yeah. just the lyrics and no music yet. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think he always did that scribbling lines down in his journal. And I'm, I don't know if he wrote those lines down with the purpose of ending up in a song or that he just always did that. And then when he needed to come up with lyrics, he just <laughs> took that yeah. like as a, as a catalog and no, let, let's look what I, what I can use. Yeah. So anyway, the, the intervention wasn't a big success. Yeah. Kurt eventually did agree to um, go into rehab. A couple of days later, um, uh, Chris was supposed to drop Kurt off at the, at the airport, but then Kurt, 
walked out on him. He uh, had second thoughts and he he went back home. Yeah. So, yeah. And then the next day, and yeah, this is, I think, a very telling um, detail, or it's not even a detail, very telling event, that um, the next day before actually went uh, into a rehab center, um, he bought a shotgun with his friend, uh, Dylan Carlson. The gun was actually in his name because Kurt had those incidents with the police where they confiscated his gun. So yeah, he didn't want to have a, didn't want to buy another gun in his, uh, in his name. I mean, at the time he said, he told Dylan that it was because he wanted to defend himself and there may have been intruders. Um, yeah, exactly. At his house, but I don't know. I can understand why Dylan would be like, yeah, sure. I mean, like police comes, takes his guns. Dylan probably didn't even know why or how. Just like we said, we didn't even know. Like, was that really a problem or not? For us Europeans, it might be hard to understand. But uh, for Americans, it's much more logical to just like have a gun somewhere in the house to defend yourself. So I can get why Dylan wouldn't have thought like, oh, I better not. We'll never know what the exact purpose was. Maybe Kurt himself didn't even know at that moment. But fact is that, yeah, he got a gun. True. And then after that, he dropped off the gun at his place and um, he flew to... uh LA to the uh, Exodus Recovery um, Center. Yeah, and that's where uh, Pat Smear popped up, <laughs> basically because he picked him up from the airport because he was yeah. in LA and uh, drove him to uh, to the recovery center. So uh, that was his uh, involvement uh, in Kurt's life at that moment. It's nice. Let's have a listen to uh, Niall Stimson, who was a counselor at that uh, center, who later in a... a a British uh, documentary um, said something about his uh, sessions with uh, with Kurt. Exodus is or was at that time a rehabilitation program for people having drug and alcohol problems and it's where a lot of rock stars have gone through recovery themselves and now they support each other and they stay sober and they have a, a network where they have special meetings and they all go to and which actually really works really well for those that want to participate but I had the feeling that he didn't really want anything to do with that type of scene. He didn't want to hear about recovery really very much at all. I mean, I don't believe that, in my opinion, he was even really ready to look at his addiction as being an issue. And the last thing he wanted to do was be preached by all these rock gods that had been there, done it. I get the feeling he didn't think that he was a junkie and that he had a legitimate reason and and he was somewhat different. Yeah, so that was his... um impression of Kurt that he wasn't really ready to face his own addiction and I don't know that much about it but uh, I can imagine that that's like the first step you need to take is acknowledge that you have a problem. Yeah exactly and I think Kurt has always been quite ambivalent in it. There were moments where he was sort of proud of of his addiction and and being really interested in, okay, I'm going to do like a lot of drugs and, and, and I enjoy that. Um, but then at the same time, feeling the horror of, of being a junkie rock star and like having, having fans in the audience who might also do drugs because of him and associate him with drugs. Um, he hated that 
like the counselor says as well, you you do need to have that feeling for yourself. Like I have something that I need to quit. And if you don't have that, and he might, he probably did have that, but not enough at that moment to really push through. And I think the legitimate reason that the counselor mentions is probably his stomach problem. Although Kurt had all also said in an interview with MTV that the problem was gone because it was finally properly diagnosed. Um, so yeah, I'm, we don't I'm not know. really sure what, what was going on there. Um, and I can imagine that the whole, we have a network of rock stars helping each other out didn't really appeal to Kurt because he always <laughs> felt like such an outsider, especially to rock stars. I mean, exactly. he liked underground characters and had his own idols, but they weren't the big stars. No, I can get why eventually it would work well. Like when you're sort of halfway through kicking your habits, it might be really useful to talk to other people in the same position as you who know how hard it is when you're on tour and when you have fans and stuff like that. But from the start, the whole idea of like <laughs> being in rehab with like other rock people, it's like, ah, uh, sounds horrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I, I can imagine that Kurt felt really uncomfortable with that yeah. idea as, as, as well. I mean, then people that, he didn't really have any respect for as musicians at least yeah would come over him and maybe he was afraid that those people were trying to you know be befriend him just because he was the new cool thing in rock music yeah yeah, yeah. but but he did meet um uh, meet uh, a friend or at least somebody somebody that he liked in the recovery center right yeah Wasn't yeah the yeah guy from the bottom yeah. surface there yeah exactly they they had apparently some nice moments together there so that's good and in one of those moments, they discussed an incident that happened uh, at the center uh, because somebody climbed uh, the back wall or the fence. I'm, I'm not sure, one of the two. Um, and they laughed about it because it was so stupid because it wasn't a closed center. So they could have, if you wanted to quit, you could were free to walk out of the, the front door. But then a couple of days later, that's exactly what Kurt did. <laughs> yep. So he, yeah. he fled the center and that's something that's really hard to make sense of. Maybe he thought it was cool or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Or funny. Or maybe he was afraid that somebody would take a picture of him leaving the center. Or yeah. It's, yeah. Who not, knows? Not, yeah. It's like, and, and like you said, it was there three days. So it was really short. Um, yeah. It's not the kind of kind of period in which you could make any change, I think. And maybe he he tried, <laughs> but it was like after the third day, it was like, oh no, I just I can't I'm do this, too, or yeah, this is the right treatment to me, or maybe he just gave up. Yeah, and I think also like when you read about um, his behavior during the days that he was in there, it sounds like like he was smart about it. He was uh, nice and positive and people who came to visit him um, said so as well, that he was really cheerful. So he sort of put up that facade of, yeah, I'm happy here that, that I'm getting help and, and whatever. If you're already planning on not staying there for too long, it's good to like not alarm anybody because then it's easier to just leave. So that sort of, 
gives me the feeling that that he probably had that already sort of thought out like yeah maybe how, yeah it's slightly let's say common behavior in in people with drug problems so it doesn't strike me as as weird and i think that's something that's important to mention as well is that the rome incident has had been brought to the media as like an accident if it was in fact a real suicide attempt the doctors in the rehab didn't know that because they they hadn't been notified about that which is also maybe something that is a shame because they probably would have taken a different approach would they have known that so yeah I don't think they they could do a lot during those two, three days that he was there. He did get a visit from uh, his daughter there. Apparently, he uh, he played with her just just a bit um, and it cheered him up. But um, yeah, it's a heartbreaking detail, I think. uh, Yeah. Like we said, after three days, he just um, left and and basically disappeared quite soon after that. Um, He flew back to Seattle and by bizarre coincidence he sat in a plane right next to another rock star yep <laughs> Duff McKagan the bass player for Guns uh, Roses. N' Roses who a couple of years earlier um, wanted to beat up Chris at the <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> MTV uh, music video awards but um, yeah uh, the atmosphere was quite quite different now um, let's uh, have a listen to what uh, Duff has uh, to say about that uh, encounter on the plane. Uh, I think I'd gotten off a tour and I was flying from LA up to Seattle to home. And I get on the plane and Kirk gets on the plane and, and sits next to me. And uh, we took off and you know he and I started talking. He had told me you know he goes I just took off from Exodus. We talked, you know, we were drinking and... I mean, did you talk about any of that heroin addiction on that, that plane journey with Kurt? No, because we, no, we didn't want to, no way. It wasn't an addiction <laughs> on that plane ride. You know, when you're drinking on a plane, you're not going to talk about addiction. But, you know, the classic junkie, heroin junkie thing is, like, you both score, like, like two, two guys are get together and, and cop some dope. And then, you know, they're strung out and you talk about, okay, yeah, we're, gonna, we're gonna quit after this. And it's a, the classic and it, it happens all the time. Yeah, we're gonna quit. That's the only time you really talk about it. Yeah. We, we, we got to Seattle, we went to baggage claim and he was, he was pretty down. And um, uh, a friend of mine, this guy Eddie, met me at baggage claim in Seattle. Kurt and Eddie went out to have a smoke, and, and my friend Eddie came back in. I said, hey, man, you know, maybe we should take him to, over to the house tonight, you know? And we were drinking, you know? So it wasn't a, uh, it wasn't a thing like uh, I foresaw anything by any means. But he was down, and he was on his own. And uh, so Eddie went back out to, to get Kurt, and right at that moment, his car had picked him up, and he was gone. Yeah, and that means that the bassist of one of his biggest rivals um, was one of the last persons to see him and speak to him. It's good that they had sort of a 
nice time together, <laughs> could say, <laughs> not not kicking each other to death or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's a weird coincidence. And uh, there has been other sightings of Kurt, but there's a lot of unconfirmed reports on that as well. Basically, what happened between uh, the time he flew back to Seattle and um, the day he committed suicide is is a black box. We don't really know what was going on. No, like you said, there's been a lot of speculation. There's been a lot of feed for more conspiracy theories due to those days. It's been said and, and discussed by a, a lot of people. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think that we don't have to go into all of those details. Uh, maybe we'll get back to some of those things later on in uh, another episode. But um, I think it's safe to say that Kurt did go back to Seattle, but he wasn't going back to Seattle because he wanted to be found. He was clearly trying to, well, disappear, I'd say, into into his own mind, into his own feelings, uh, into drugs maybe. But he wasn't reaching out to people at that moment during those days. And a couple of days after his uh, departure from uh, the Exodus Center, um, a missing persons report was filed with the police. Uh, I think Courtney did it, but she um, said that she was Kurt's mom. Yeah, I don't know why. I mean, nope. as, if, if you're his wife, you can <laughs> also file a missing persons report. So, yeah. It, it, again, it's yeah, strange yeah. behavior by Courtney, who, by the way, was trying to kick her own uh, substance uh, addiction uh, at the same time as Kurt. I think she was in LA as well. Yeah. But like trying a different approach. She was in a hotel, I believe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So she wasn't um, in, in Seattle either. She did check into rehab, like official rehab, but that was a couple of days later, just before she heard what had happened to him. So she was in that process of, yeah, trying to... Um, work it all out for herself. And then she tried to uh, locate Kurt by, like like we said, uh, filing a missing, missing persons report, uh, blocking his uh, credit card, and by hiring a private detective to find him. Yeah. And uh, I'm pretty sure that that detective will uh, come up later, but not 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 for now <laughs> not in this episode uh, no <laughs> not in this episode uh, no we'll get back to it but safe yeah. to say that she she hired him because she was in LA and also let's not forget that uh, apart from her trying to kick her own habit her new album was due to come out so that was yeah. extra stress and also a reason for her to try and get off her own addiction by sending that private detective she also gave him a lot of names of other people in Seattle, friends who could help. So he was in contact with a lot of other people in, in her and Kurt's friend group um, who, in their way, tried to also help find him, look out for him. But yeah, to no avail. On um, April the 8th, his, uh, his body was found in a, in a room above the garage. They, they usually refer to as the, the green room. It was determined that he was probably lying there for three days. Um, there was a high uh, level of uh, heroin in his blood and he had shot himself with that um, shotgun we already uh, we already mentioned. And yeah. I think one, one detail that 
can really infuriate me is that when he was found by an electrician, uh, the boss of the guy uh, who found him uh, immediately phoned um, the media. I think yeah. he uh, made a call to a local radio station. And I think that's such a awful, horrible thing to do. Because that way, some of his f- closest friends and relatives had to find out about his death through the media. That's that's something that is just unforgivable. And um, let's also not forget that, um, apart from for Kurt and his family and friends, there is this guy working for him who just found a dead person. So you're going to need to be there for him um, as well and not phone the media and just, yeah, <sighs> that's... Yeah, I hope he later um, came to his senses and felt ashamed about it. But uh, it was a was a really really horrible thing to do. I think. Yeah, and, uh, and he probably didn't even like people who sell photos get money for it. But just phoning the media and saying like, okay, there's like a dead guy there, and it's probably Kurt. It's not giving you any money. So no, I think he jokingly you? asked some some concert tickets in return from the radio station. That's just sad. And I, I think it says something about how uh, a person like Kurt isn't, not everybody sees him as a person anymore. Not everybody mm-hmm. sees him as a human being with friends and loved ones and, and, no, and, and the family. They just see him as like an, an an icon they know from the TV and from the magazines. And he's like, like a puppet and not real human being. So I think that's... Uh, yeah, I think it's spot on. So... Um, the news got out and of course it came to, to a big shock. I can imagine that at first there was some confusion over it because Kurt had been declared dead a couple of times before. I remember seeing one <laughs> uh, really bizarre interview uh, with Kurt himself. <laughs> the reporter says, so how do you feel about the news that Kurt of Nirvana is dead? <laughs> so... <laughs> that's, that's really, wow okay <laughs> really bizarre but but I, c- I can imagine that there was some confusion about it and they were hoping that this was a, a, a false claim uh, yeah. a- again but uh yeah pretty soon it uh, became clear that uh, that it wasn't so pretty soon after that um some details about his death um were made public yeah within a couple of days uh, a memorial service was uh, was held uh, it was. I think it was a quite a smart move that there was a public uh, memorial service and a private memorial service at the same time, so his um, his loved ones wouldn't get bothered by his fans. I think yeah. basically that was it, and maybe it, uh, it was also a move to distract the media a bit from the private service. Yeah, I think that was smart because those images of the public memorial service just like went o- all over the world and that was very impressive to see all of those fans mourning in in Seattle that was enough for the press to sort of forget i guess about the private service because that was uh, smaller and um just as impressive but visually uh less interesting so uh yeah, I think that was a really uh, a really smart move uh, to do, and also I think what's worth mentioning. And I, I don't know if you if you heard that episode. I think I sent it to you, but I don't know if you actually got the time to listen to it. There's this great podcast called "You're Wrong About," and they did an episode on copycat suicides. 
there are podcasts that talks about things that you think you know what happened, but then it's different. Um, and they took the Kurt Cobain case like as an example, and they did a really good job, both like the friends and family of Kurt and also the, the, the people around that in acknowledging the suicide and then also warning against it. So there was like a suicide counselor uh, from Seattle who was speaking at that uh, public memorial service. Um, and on MTV, they had a lot of like counseling and stuff like that. And obviously the band members themselves and Courtney were also like really going into detail about that and, and trying to help the fans. There was a lot of room for fans to mourn, but also a lot of people um, surrounding Kurt knew that they had to be like, uh, they had to protect him, I'd say. And by doing, um, allowing a memorial service like that in Seattle and having those recorded messages by Courtney and by Chris and having a counselor there and whatever, I think that that was a great move that has also probably helped a lot of fans at that moment to uh, to deal with their grief. I must admit, I haven't listened to that podcast you sent me. Uh, now when you mention it, I think, oh, right. Yeah, it's good. Um, I, I remember it, but I did read the book, Here We Are Now, uh, The Lasting Impact of uh, Kurt Cobain, written by Charles R. Cross. Um, and he also talks about this subject. And he says that although there was one person who went home after the memorial service and took his own life. Yeah. In general, the suicide rates were going down. And he also says that, yeah, well, um, his music was very popular, especially among young uh, men who are already uh, a high, have a, already a higher risk of uh, committing suicide. So if they have a Nirvana album on their shelf, that doesn't mean that that's the reason why they did it. It was kind of the, the image and the, the narrative that was created. And I think even to this day, some people still think that it's inspired or made more people commit suicide. But yeah. that, that doesn't add up with the facts. No, exactly. That's that's also why that, that podcast talked about it. That That's why they called You're Wrong About <laughs> to, <laughs> to debunk that kind of thing. Although what I did find interesting was that someone in that podcast had a friend who actually did commit suicide, slightly inspired by Kurt. Um, and she said like, yeah, there is that one guy, that one story that you just mentioned. But yeah, I know somebody else and, and he's not in the statistics. I think this comes back to that, that same thing I, I said, um, at the beginning of the podcast. Like, you never really know exactly why somebody kills no. themselves. And like you said, um, I think there is a big misunderstanding when young people commit suicide and are fan of specific kinds of music, whether it's Kurt Cobain or music with certain lyrics or whatever. Um, and like you said, they have that album on their shelf. It's easy to point a finger to that. It's always a, a combination of facts. And it's hard to make a difference between the cause and the effect. I mean, it could also be that they were drawn to that music because they were already feeling that way. Like you said, it's a misunderstanding and a simplification to just say, oh, if you listen to a certain kind of music, it can make you feel 
depressed or violent yeah. or or whatever. Exactly, but I do think that what is good about how the the family and friends of Kurtz took on this subject um, back then and and I think even now is by not um, buying into that whole um, tortured musician artists thing, like not make it make it beautiful. Oh yeah, and he couldn't take it, and he had so many ideas, but nobody understood him, and that's why he committed suicide. I mean, there's a lot of stories like that about artists, and the fact that Courtney just said, like, okay, like I hate him because he, like, you have a child and you just leave her. I think it's relevant to make it normal like that, and and make it realistic instead of just sticking to that whole romantic kind of idea of um yeah it's good that they um, didn't glorify it or 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 didn't hide it i mean they were open about it i think that was a good good thing exactly i mean of course they wouldn't glorify it themselves but you know yep. try to make it um hard for other people to do that maybe that's exactly uh, maybe that's what i was trying to say yeah you already mentioned that there were uh, recorded messages from uh, chris and uh, and courtney yeah. that were uh, played uh, at the uh, public uh, service. Chris was very, very brief, focusing uh, mainly on the music. So let's uh, play that one first. On behalf of Dave, Pat and I, I would like to thank you all for your concern at this time. We remember Kurt for what he was, caring, generous and sweet. Let's keep the music with us. We'll always have it forever. Kurt had an ethic toward his fans that was rooted in the punk rock way of thinking. No band is special, no player royalty. If you've got a guitar and a lot of soul, just bang something out and mean it. You're the superstar, plugged in the tones and rhythms that are uniquely and universally human. Music. Heck, use your guitar as a drum. Just catch the groove and let it flow out of your heart. That's the level that Kurt spoke to us on, in our hearts. And that's where he and the music will always be. Forever. He very obviously um, spoke to them as fans of Kurt's music. Mm-hmm. Courtney took a different approach. Um, it's quite a long uh, message that she sent. She basically read his entire uh, uh, suicide letter. I have it lined up, of course. I, th- I think I'll edit it in at the end of this episode because we're not going to listen to the whole thing now. But. Yeah. Uh, if you, as a listener, want to listen to it, uh, just uh, stick with us to the end and uh, I'll throw it in there. Is there any specific part you would have a listen to now and talk about? No, I'll, I'll go with what you choose. I don't really think it takes away his dignity to read this, considering that it's addressed to most of you. He's such an asshole. I want you all to say asshole really loud. This note should be pretty easy to understand. All the warnings from the Punk Rock 101. Curses over the years since my first introduction to the, shall we say, ethics involved with independence and the embracement of your community has proven to be very true. I haven't felt the excitement of listening to as well as creating music along with really writing 
something for too many years now. I feel guilty beyond words about these things. For example, when we're backstage and the lights go out and the manic roar of the crowd begins, it doesn't affect me the way in which it did for Freddie Mercury, <laughs> who seemed to love and relish in the love and adoration from the crowd. Well, Kurt, so fucking what? Then don't be a rock star, you asshole. Which is something I totally admire and envy. The fact is, I can't fool you, any one of you. It simply isn't fair to you or to me. The worst crime I can think of would be to pull people off by faking it, pretending as if I'm having 100% fun. No, Kurt, the worst crime I can think of is for you to just continue being a rock star when you fucking hate it and just fucking stop. You could reenact this this whole thing as like a short play. It's so, it's almost, I won't say perfect, but the the the, the choices she makes in in saying things back to him, talking to the gr- crowd, which isn't there at that moment because she's pre-recording it. But it's yeah, it's it's like a small theater play in itself. <laughs> Which I don't yeah. mean, like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean that, like, that it's disingenuous or whatever, but it's, yeah. Yeah, it's it's fitting for both the circumstances and for Courtney as a personality. And uh, I think there's a lot of things you can say about Courtney that aren't very positive. But I have a lot of respect for the way she handled this situation. Yes, yeah. She later even uh, showed up at the um, uh, public uh, memorial service. I think she talked to fans of Kurtz and handed out uh, some of his clothes, I think. So, yeah, I think she felt connected to them in a way or responsible for them in a way, or she just didn't know what to do with herself and thought, well, maybe I'll just just go (laughs) there, even though she must have known that she wasn't the most popular person among Kurt's fans I think even back then but uh, yeah she put her put herself out there in a very raw uh, and vulnerable way I think it's pretty uh, impressive I think sharing those feelings uh, and and the anger and uh, that hopefully helped her as well at that moment I think it's always good to uh, to be able to share your uh, <laughs> share your feelings if something like that happened and uh, yeah yeah, true. Although she has been a, a mess for years and years to come uh, after this. Yeah, uh, yeah. But I think she was a bit of a mess before it happened as well. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's fair to say. Um, do you remember how you yourself heard the news and and reacted to it? Yes, definitely. I I remember this really well. I was uh, on holiday. I'd been. Somewhere out of the country, I don't know where. Um, can't remember that, but <laughs> at least I wasn't in Netherlands. And I had, uh, I had um, like a Walkman. Remember those kids, Walkman. Yeah, yeah. And if you don't Google them, <laughs> uh, exactly. And I had a really special Walkman because it had radio on it, um, mm. and I loved listening to the radio. But that didn't work outside of the Netherlands um, because of the FM band. Um, so. I know I was coming back from the holiday and we were in a bus um, and um, we crossed the border, the Dutch border, and uh, the bus stopped somewhere there um, just to have like a break because it was like a long bus tour. So the driver had to like 
go out and take a break every year, two and a half hours. We stepped out of the bus. I was with my mom. I was like, oh, let's see if the radio works again so I can listen to the radio. And then the radio worked. And the first thing I heard was like, yeah, Kurt Cobain has just died, which was obviously a shock. But at that, I mean, <laughs> because of that weird circumstance, it's like, I'll, I'll definitely never forget that. I can, I can just see myself standing there and being like, what the hell? How, how did this happen? And, um, like, I think uh, three years before that, that Freddie Mercury died, I guess. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, something like that. I think so. Um, because I was still in high school when Freddie Mercury died and I wasn't anymore when Kurt died. But anyway, I know when Freddie Mercury died, like, I wasn't a big Queen fan at the time, but I had a lot of friends who were and that that was like a whole, big deal at that moment and that was sort of weird to me because I didn't have like any connection to that so <laughs> I had friends who were like really sad and wearing their queen shirts to school and the morning and whatever because that was somewhere in the morning that 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 became a fact when it happened with Kurt Cobain I sort of thought back to those friends who had gone through that yeah. for the mercury and I, I like realizing like oh this is like how it feels when somebody like that dies and then when when we came back home radio mtv just basically watching everything listening to everything i can really remember quite well those images of the fans in seattle were all over mtv and i can really remember that and and journalists being there and speaking to people and uh yeah, so I have really, really vivid memories of that. Yeah, to me, it was like a completely different experience because I wasn't into Nirvana just yet. So when I got into the band like one or two years later, it was already um, a given that Kurt wasn't around anymore. It's like if you're getting into the doors, yeah, you know. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I, I love Jim the Morrison doors as well, but you know anymore, he's dead. <laughs> or, yeah, or name any dead musician uh, here. I mean, if you're a big fan of Beethoven, well, <laughs> you know that you're never going to see him live. <laughs> <laughs> That's a stupid yeah. example, but uh, well, you get you get what I mean. Yeah, um, yeah so that, that basically, I think, uh, brings us to... Um, the end of this uh, this story um i do have um two more uh, quotes lined up one of those is by uh, by dave and um he talks about the uh, private memorial service um not in in detail but a couple of years ago he was asked by bbc radio to talk about his favorite beatles songs and uh, well you know i'm a big beatles fan so uh of course, I uh, I checked it out, um, <laughs> and he says something about a, a song that was uh, played at the memorial service. So, uh, can listen to Dave. This song comes from the Rubber Soul album released in 1965. It means a lot to me because it was the song that was played at Kurt Cobain's memorial that day, after everyone had said their piece. This next song came over the speakers. And everyone got to celebrate Kurt's love of the Beatles one last time together. Um, still to this day, when I hear it, it touches a place in me that no other song ever will. Um, it's called In My Life 
and knowing how much of a fan Kurt was of the Beatles and how much of an influence they were to everything that we've ever done, um, I'd like to play this one for him. This is In My Life from Rubber Soul. I think it was actually his uh, manager who suggested uh, to play this song. They knew they had to play a Beatles song. Uh, he was a bit older, so uh, he came up uh, with this one, and I think it's very, uh, very appropriate. It's a tearjerker. <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful yeah. song. It's like, yeah, it's. Do you uh, know the Johnny Cash version of it? Oh yeah, that's really good as well. It's really good. Yeah. 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 Gonna play it after this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, is there anything? more we should say about this final chapter of our 20 episode story no i think we came to the inevitable end um and thankfully we all already knew that this was the end so um it doesn't come as a shock it's still sad because who knows what kurt and the rest of the band could have done but on the other hand um if this hadn't happened here, it might have happened at another moment soon in his life. I'm I'm just happy that we have uh, the the things that we have from him and from the rest of the band. Um, I do want to add for anyone who's listening who is struggling with suicidal feelings or depression or whatever to please reach out to people who can help you. There's organizations where you can call. Send us a message. Um, like we're there for you if you if you have any feelings like that. Um, please don't feel alone. And uh, yeah, that's nice. Um, and if you have anything else to share, you're also uh, welcome to uh, reach out to us. You can send an email to surewoodpodcast at gmail dot com. That's uh, surewoodpodcast at gmail dot com. Uh, or you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash uh, Nirvana Podcast. You can send us a message there as well. For instance, if you have a suggestion uh, for uh, one of our next uh, episodes, like we said, we're going to take a more thematic approach. So we're not going to promise anything if you suggest it, just that we're going to uh, uh, think about it and that we might uh, might do it. So that's, uh, that's it. Like I said, um, uh, stick around to listen to the whole um, urology that, uh, that uh, Courtney uh, uh, did. But first, um, I want to thank you, uh, Yeritja, for uh, podcasting with me, uh, with me again. Thank you uh, for having me again and uh, happy to, uh, to be here and uh, do some more podcasts uh, later on. Yeah, we definitely will. Um, and I also uh, want to thank uh, everybody out there uh, uh, listening. Yeah, let's uh, let's give uh, first the final word to Chris, and then like a, like I said, like a, a, a bonus feature. Um, we're going to uh, have a listen to Courtney again. But uh, for now, thanks for listening, and until next time. Bye. Bye. And you re- see the art. I mean, a lot of a lot of his messages are as plain as day. You just—I'm not even going to say what they are, but you can see it, and it's all there. And, you know, in 2020 hindsight, you're like, oh, my God, why didn't I see that? Or I should have said something. But, you know, it's like.
I feel the same way you guys do. If you guys don't think that I used to sit in this room when he played guitar and sang, it feels so honored to be near him. You're crazy. Anyway, he left a note. It's more like a letter to the fucking editor. I don't know what happened. I mean, it was gonna happen. But it could have happened when he was 40. He always said he was gonna outlive everybody and be 120. I'm not gonna read you all the note because it's none of the rest of your fucking business, but some of it is to you. I don't really think it takes away his dignity to read this considering that it's addressed to most of you. He's such an asshole. I want you all to say asshole really loud. This note should be pretty easy to understand. All the warnings from the Punk Rock 101 curses over the years since my first introduction to the, shall we say, ethics involved with independence and the embracement of your community has proven to be very true. I haven't felt the excitement of listening to as well as creating music along with really writing something for too many years now. I feel guilty beyond words about these things. For example, when we're backstage and the lights go out and the manic roar of the crowd begins, it doesn't affect me the way in which it did for Freddie Mercury, <laughs> who seemed to love and relish in the love and adoration from the crowd. Well, Kurt, so fucking what? Then don't be a rock star, you asshole. Which is something I totally admire and envy. The fact is, I can't fool you, any one of you. It simply isn't fair to you or to me. The worst crime I can think of would be to pull people off by faking it, pretending as if I'm having 100% fun. No, Kurt, the worst crime I can think of is for you to just continue being a rock star when you fucking hate it and just fucking stop. Sometimes I feel as I should have a punch-in time clock before I walk out on stage. I've tried everything within my power to appreciate it, and I do. God, believe me, I do, but it's not enough. I appreciate the fact that I and we have affected and entertained a lot of people. I must be one of those narcissists <laughs> who only appreciate things when they're alone. I'm too sensitive. Oh... I need to be slightly numb in order to regain the enthusiasm I once had as our child. On our last three tours, I've had a much better appreciation of all the people I've known personally and as fans of our music, but I still can't get out the frustration, the guilt, and the empathy I have for everybody. There's good in all of us, and I simply love people too much. So why don't you just fucking stay? So much that it makes me feel too fucking sad. The sad, little, sensitive, unappreciative, Pisces, Jesus, man. Oh, shut up, Pastor. Why don't you just enjoy it? I don't know. Then he goes on to say personal things to me that are none of your damn business. Personal things of Francis that are none of your damn business. I had it good, very good, and I'm grateful. 
But since the age of seven, I've become hateful towards all humans in general, only because it seems so easy for people to get along and have empathy. Empathy. Only because I love and feel for people too much, I guess. Thank you all from the pit of my burning, nauseous stomach for your letters and concern during the last years. I'm too much of an erratic, moody person that I don't have the passion anymore. And so remember, and don't remember this because this is a fucking lie. It's better to burn out than to fade away. God, you asshole. Peace, love, empathy, Kurt Cobain. And then there's some more personal things that are none of your damn businesses. And just remember, this is all bullshit. But I want you to know one thing. That 80s tough love bullshit, it doesn't work. It's not real. It doesn't work. I should have let him, we all should have let him have his numbness. We should have let him have the thing that made him feel better, that made his stomach feel better. We should have let him have it. Instead of trying to strip away his skin. You go home and you tell your parents, don't you ever try that tough love bullshit on me because it doesn't fucking work. That's, that's what I think. And I'm laying in our bed. And I'm really sorry. And I feel the same way you do. I'm really sorry, you guys. I don't know what I could have done. I wish I'd have been here. And I wish I hadn't listened to other people. But I did. Every night I've been sleeping with his mother and I wake up in the morning I think it's him because her body's sort of the same. And I have to go now. Just tell him he's a fucker, okay? Just say, fucker, you're a fucker. And that you love it.